thought of that. Really, you've never been to Singapore. Where did you get that? On your feet. I believe thanks are in order. Had a brush with the East India Trading Company, did we? Hire it? Hang him! Keep your guns on him, then. Gillette, fetch some irons. Well, well. Jack Sparrow, isn't it? Captain Jack Sparrow, if you please, sir. Well, I don't see your ship. Captain? I'm in the market, as it were. He said he'd come to commandeer one. I told you he was telling the truth. These are his, sir. No additional shots nor powder. A compass that doesn't point north. And I half expected it to be made of wood. You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. But you have heard of me. Commodore, I really must protest. Carefully, Lieutenant. Pirate or not, this man saved my life. One good deed is not enough to redeem a man of a lifetime of wickedness. Though it seems enough to condemn him. Indeed. Finally. <gasps> no, no, don't shoot! I knew you'd all up to me. Commodore Norrings in my effects, please. And my hat. Commodore! Elizabeth, it is Elizabeth, isn't it? Miss Swan. Miss Swan, if you'd be so kind. Come, come here. We don't have all day. Now, if you'll be very kind. the goods, darling. You're despicable. Sticks and stones, love. 
I saved your life, you saved mine, Miss Quay. Gentlemen, milady, you will always remember this as the day that you almost caught Captain Jack Spanner. <laughs> points out something, Jack points out something in this scene that kind of is common to all of us, and that's on your listening guide. The first thing is, we all want to be known. We have this deep desire inside to know that we have a purpose, a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to do something. We want to be known. Commodore Norrington says, you are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of. And Jack says, but you have heard of me. That was a terrible Jack Sparrow. I won't do that again. Um... I just love this scene. Throughout this movie, and actually throughout all of the movies, Jack makes a point to tell everybody it's Captain Jack Sparrow. They all say, oh, you're Jack Sparrow. Captain Jack Sparrow. He wants people to recognize who he is and address him properly. Um, And I love Jack Sparrow. I mean, Captain Jack. I love Captain Jack. He makes me laugh one minute, and the next minute he makes me shake my head wondering what his motives are. His motives seem to be Jack. Uh, you, you, You wonder why he does some of the things that he does. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about this movie, and I was thinking about how to make application from this movie. And in the middle of the night, believe it or not, I believe the Lord showed me this passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today. It's in Acts. If you have your Bibles or your smartphones, pull out your smartphones. It's one time it's appropriate to pull out a smartphone if you have a Bible app on it and use that Bible app. We're in Acts chapter 19. And uh, we're going to look at several things here uh, from this passage. Acts chapter 19 says this. Uh, Verse 8, then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. At this point, they weren't called Christians. They were still known as the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So anybody who followed Jesus was known as someone who was part of the way. So they were speaking out against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that the people who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Gentiles, heard of the word of the Lord. Okay, now Jews are God's chosen people. Gentiles are everyone else on the planet. So when this says that both Jews and Gentiles in the province of Asia have heard about the Lord, how many people have heard about the Lord? All of them. All right, thank you for playing. What is going on here is Paul has returned to Ephesus. He's been there before on a prior missionary journey. What we're reading about is his third journey. He went out from, from a church in Antioch and he planted churches. He did this three different times. But on this particular trip, he's going back to those churches that he's already established to see what's going on with them. Now, Paul would generally go to the synagogue. That's the way. And if, if you realize, uh, if you study Jesus' life, you'll see that when he would go to a town, he would go to the synagogue and it was considered polite in that culture if you have 
have a visiting teacher who comes to church that day, you let the visiting teacher share what they have heard or learned because um, they may have some teaching that you've not heard of yet. So Paul was merely following in the footsteps of Jesus by going to the synagogue and teaching. And the fact that he got to stay there three months is remarkable for Paul because he usually ticked people off sometimes the very first time he preached, at least within the first couple of weeks, and they would run him out of the synagogue. He'd have to go somewhere else. So there was a man in the synagogue named, or at least in Ephesus named Tyrannus, he was a teacher. And what they would do is they would have a, a lecture hall, similar to what we're in here today. They would have lectures. They would teach people philosophy or something like that, something that would prepare them for life. And they would hold these discussions, usually in the morning time, which meant in the afternoons, the, the uh, lecture hall was empty. And so Paul would be teaching during the afternoon time. He leaves the synagogue because people have become... Hard-hearted is what one translation said. We talked about hard hearts last week. They become stubborn. So he takes all the true believers. He goes to the lecture hall and he teaches for a period of two years. And after two years, we're, we're told in this passage that all the people, Jews and Gentiles, knew what Paul was saying about Jesus. See, this is in contrast to Captain Jack. Captain Jack wanted everybody to hear about him. Paul, being an incredible servant of God, wanted everybody to hear about his master, God. Paul is doing his job, which is pointing everyone to Jesus. And then everybody that, that comes to be a part of the way, Christians, they're, te- they're doing their part. They're telling other people about Jesus. Now, Captain Jack is worried about himself. Paul is worried about God. Now, we're going to go back to the movie. In the movie, Captain Jack pulls off a second escape, and his fame increases exponentially. And uh, I want you to watch this. Everyone stay calm. We're taking over the ship. This ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Son, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy. Commodore.
come to be the best pirate I've ever seen. So it would seem. Now, by outwitting the Commodore, Jack's fame went to a whole nother level. You know people would be talking about this for weeks. This seemingly overmatched uh, pirate going up against the whole British Navy. And with the help of the British Navy, he steals the fastest ship in the Caribbean Sea. Um, it's kind of stuff that legends are made of. And if you are the Commodore, it's the stuff that gets you fired because you don't want that on your report. You know, you come across another place in the, in the ocean and they, oh, you're the one who helped Captain Jack steal one of our best ships. That's, that's not really the best thing that you want. Now, in our passage of scripture, we're going to see that God is going to take his own fame to a whole nother level. Continuing in Acts 19 verse 11. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. That's a big deal. Remember that. Unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. That's pretty extraordinary, wouldn't you say? Something just touches Paul. God gave Paul this type power that all something had to do was touch him, could be taken to a sick person. Can you imagine all the people we could do great stuff for today if, if Paul were only here? Right now, you got to understand in all of Bible history, there were three time periods where there were uh, a period of unusual or extraordinary miracles. The first was in the time of Moses parting the Red Sea. That's pretty unusual. All the plagues that happened, water from a rock, manna, all those things were pretty unusual, even for the Bible. There was another time with the prophets Elijah and Elisha extraordinary miracles happened during their time. Um, and and uh, there's great stories in the Bible. Some of my favorite stories are about Elijah and Elisha. And the third time period of unusual miracles was the time of Jesus. And then that period of history right after Jesus walked on the earth when his apostles were carrying on his ministry and the church was getting started. Now, if you add all of those time periods, all of those miracles that happened in those three unusual time periods of unusual miracles you'll get less than a hundred miracles. Now, we're told in John 20 that not all of the things that Jesus did were recorded in, in the Bible because if we recorded everything John said, then the books of the earth would not be enough to contain them. So we know Jesus did a whole lot of stuff. But let's just say that you added up all of those, if you added up all of recorded history uh, in, in the Bible, of all the miracles, it's less than a hundred. And we know that God's all-powerful. I mean, it's one of the things as a kid, I remember reading the little children's Bible and you saw those things and you're like, wow, God is the coolest. I want to be on his team, right? And if miracles are such a big deal and if God can do all miracles, why aren't there more miracles in the Bible? Well, I think the short answer is, this on your listening guide, is miracles do not save lost sinners. And some of you might bow up and say, I'd, I'd, I'd beg to differ. Well, let me just explain this. Miracles must be tied to the word of God. Jesus performed miracles for three reasons. Number one, he did it so that he could demonstrate his compassion on humans and meet their needs. That's one reason he did miracles. Second reason was to dis demonstrate a spiritual truth. Many times right after Jesus would teach some type of truth, he would go out and do a practical application to perform a miracle that directly related to that truth he just taught. 
And the third reason that he did miracles was to validate his claims as the son of God, as the Messiah. You would expect the Messiah to have certain powers. If he really is God's son, if God created the earth, if the first uh, few words of the Bible are true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you would expect God's son to have some incredible power. So Jesus did miracles for those three reasons. And his followers, his apostles, the ones that started the first church, Paul, all of these guys who went around and started all these churches, they performed miracles for the exact same reasons. Um, and, and the miracles were merely there to point people to the Savior. The miracles in themselves weren't the big deal. The miracles were a sign, a neon sign, a big arrow saying, God is the one who is healing you. Because lots of times when the, the disciples would perform a miracle, people would try to worship them. They'd say, oh, do not worship me. I remember these stories as a kid. Do not worship me. I am a man just like you. Worship God who enabled me to do that. Totally different from a Jack Sparrow type idea of, of promoting yourself. Now, God enabled Paul to do these unusual miracles in Ephesus for a specific reason. Ephesus was known as one of the centers of the, of the ancient world of occult practices. All kinds of magic, all kinds of witchcraft were going on in Ephesus. And so God let Paul invade Satan's territory and demonstrate a power that is greater than Satan's power right in his capital. But our enemy is smart. Our enemy sees this and he knows that even good things, because here's what Satan does. Satan always takes something good and perverts it and tempts us to go after the perversion. In this instance, what we all want is power. Satan saw this power that Paul demonstrated. He knew that people, human nature was, we desire some type of power. We desire something so that we can be known. We desire some type of power. God's power is good, but Satan perverts it and turns it into something bad. It's true today. It was true thousands of years ago. Look what happens in verse 13. Some Jewish men started going around trying to force out evil spirits by using the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is really strange. Not that Jewish leaders would try to cast out demons. They did that on a regular basis. They attempted to. But the fact that they would use Jesus' name was totally outrageous because they couldn't stand Jesus. He was not a good Jew according to how they defined good Jews. And so they would never use Jesus' name unless they thought it gave them additional power. Look what happens. They said to the spirits, come out in the name of that same Jesus. I'm sorry, this is just comical to me. Come out in the name of the same Jesus that Paul preaches about. Not the Jesus that I know, not the Jesus that I'm familiar with, not the God that I'm in touch with, but this other dude, he had power, and so I'm going to call on the same power that he has. Does that make sense to you? Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva, seven sons of Sceva, were doing this. When an evil spirit said to them, I know Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? I think if, if I were one of the seven sons of Sceva and a demon is speaking through someone to me at that point, I'm kind of scared. Satan attempts to imitate the work of God because he knows that lost people can't tell the difference. And if lost people will chase after someone over here who's doing a perverted work and, and even attributing it to Jesus Christ, if, they, if he can pervert the main power, he has got them for all of eternity. 
And so they thought that this saying in Jesus' name, a lot of people will tack on in Jesus' name at the end of a, a prayer as if, let's pray everything that we want and as if in Jesus' name is this magical spell that we can add to the end of it and God has to stamp it and say, oh, well, it's in Jesus' name. I've got to give you what you want. They thought that in Jesus' name was this incantation, this magic spell that was beyond any magic spell they had ever seen before. And they thought, wow, this is going to work. Well, let's see if it works. Because the demon says, I know Jesus, heard about Paul. When you are dealing with demonic power, which is very real, by the way, never go in your power. Janie and I have each seen what we thought was demon possession one time in our life. True demon possession. And it's bizarre. And it's scary. And you don't want to go in human power and wisdom because look what happens in verse 16. Then the man with the evil spirit jumped on them and beat them up. They ran out of the house naked and bruised. Now see, in, in Middle Eastern culture, I mean, maybe, maybe today if you're whooped by some demonic possessed person and you go running down the street naked, maybe that just, you know, is a blip on the news. But in this day and age, a, a self-respecting Middle Eastern man would never go out into public without all of his garments on. It was considered beneath them. You were some kind of low life if you did it. They had to run out of the house naked. Did their scheme work? In the, say, in the name of this same Jesus that Paul preaches, did it work? Did their magic spell work? No, because it's not about a magic spell. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to the Jews and Greeks alike. There it is. To everyone... And look what happened. A solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. In one translation it says, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified in that area because here was a superior power to anything they had ever seen before. Satan's power is a perverted power. God's power is all powerful. And see, had these priests succeeded in casting out this demon in the name of Jesus, the church would have disbanded because there would have been no extraordinary power there. Everybody said, oh, you're just one of these, you're, you're the same as anybody else. You're the same as these spells that we have in these books. We'll read about those in just a minute. But God used this particular incident to magnify His image in the lives of people. And people said, there's someone, it's not Paul it's the God of Paul who has all power. And God did some extraordinary things. And see, this was a, a pivotal time in church history. When, when if the name of Jesus was tied to all these magic spells, it could have been discredited. But God said, no, the name of Jesus stands above every other name. It was a pivotal time and God said, I will demonstrate my power. And when people see God's power, their lives are changed. Now, in our next movie clip, we come to a pivotal time in the movie. And the pirates have kidnapped Miss Swan, and she is having dinner with Captain Barbosa. And I want you to listen for the line, I hardly believe in ghost stories anymore, Captain Barbosa. And I want you to listen. He's going to explain this curse that is upon them. And by the end of the scene, I want you to pay attention to, where she, uh, to whether she has changed her mind and now believes in ghosts. There is no need to stand on ceremony, no call to impress anyone. You must be hungry.
Andy Apple's one of those next. It's poisoned. <laughs> there would be no sense to be killing you, Miss Turner. Then release me. You have your trinket. I'm of no further value to you. Blood money paid to stem the slaughter he wreaked upon him with his armies. But the greed of Cortez was insatiable. So the heathen gods placed upon the gold a terrible curse. An immortal that removes but a single piece from that stone chest shall be punished for eternity. I hardly believe in ghost stories anymore, Captain Barbosa. I... That's exactly what I thought when we were first told the tale. Buried on an island of dead, what cannot be found, except for those who know where it is. Find it, we did. There be the chest. Inside be the gold. We took them all. We spent them and traded them. Fetched them away. Drink and food pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths, and all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We have accursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, now for too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing, not the wind on my face nor the spray of the sea, nor the warmth of a woman's flesh. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. Think she changed her mind by the end? Satan knows, oh, this is the third point, is we're offered a counterfeit. Satan perverts the real thing, offers you a counterfeit because he knows. All he has to do is get your eyes on the counterfeit so you'll miss the real thing and then you'll be accursed for eternity. All that's required for people to miss heaven is to be distracted from the Savior. And then they'll pursue the counterfeit. And, and what Barbosa says is, compelled by greed, we are consumed by it. You will be consumed by whatever is, it is you are worshiping that is not God. Satan has convinced many people that this life is all there is. So if this life is all there is, then you're in charge. You do whatever you want to. Party, live it up. And everyone else can just go to, to hell. What, what so many people use as an insult or an end to an argument as a throwaway line is a literal reality for many people today. They will go to hell. And Satan is winning in so many of our churches even. It's no wonder that he's prevailing all over the world if he's prevailing in our churches. There's a very real power that we don't even understand. And people say, oh, well, well, hell's not, not real. 
People say, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? And my answer is always, a loving God never sends anyone to hell. Hell was created for Satan and his demons who were cast out of heaven. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. They were cast out of heaven and God created this place called hell. It's an eternal torment for them. God never sends anyone to hell. People choose hell when they reject His Son because the only unforgivable sin that, that the Bible talks about is dying without accepting what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So you've got to choose to follow Christ. Choose to get the real power. Otherwise, you will go to hell. It's a very real possibility. Well, in the, in the movie, there's a curse and, and there is a cure for the curse And I want you to see that cure. What code is gifts to keep to us the worst should happen? Pilot's code. Any man who falls behind is left behind. No heroes amongst thieves, eh? You know, for having such a bleak outlook on pirates, you're well on your way to becoming one. Sprung a man from jail. Commandeered a ship of the fleet. Sail with a buccaneer crew out of Tortuga. And you're completely obsessed with treasure. That's not true. I am not obsessed with treasure. Not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. Gentlemen, the time has come! And each man jacked you here has proved his mettle a hundred times over. And a hundred times again. Punish we were, the lavas, disproportionate to our crimes. Here it is. The cursed treasure of Cortez himself. Last piece that went astray, we have returned. Save for this. Jack, look yet. We wait for the opportune moment. When's that? When it's of greatest profit to you. May I ask you something? Have I ever given you reason not to trust me? Do us a favor. I know it's difficult for you. But please, stay here and try not to do anything stupid. And who among us has paid the blood sacrifice owed to the heathen gods? And whose blood must yet be paid? You know, the first thing I'm going to do after the curse is lifted. (laughs) Eat a whole bushel of apples.
don't feel no different. How do we tell? No, I'm not dead. No. He shot me. It didn't work. The curse is still upon us. You made your father. What was his name? Was your father William Turner? No. Where's his child? The child that sailed from England eight years ago. The child in whose veins flows the blood of William Turner. Where? us the wrong person. Now, I want to tell you today that we're not living in a ghost story, but according to scripture, according to Jesus himself, the founder of our religion, we are living in a spiritual story. The seven sons of Sceva found out the hard way that the choices you make or don't make have serious consequences in this spiritual journey. The choices that you have made according to scripture means you and I are cursed because we have chosen to accept the counterfeit and turn our backs on God. But there's hope if we choose the right blood. They chose the wrong blood. They stayed a curse. The Bible says that you can choose the right blood. And I know this from Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty two. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But you got to choose the right blood because in the movie, the curse was not lifted because they shed the blood of the wrong person. In real life, you've got to choose how your sins will be paid for. And there's really two options. Either you will pay for your own sins, which means when you die, you stand before God and you say, my life is the reason I should be in heaven. Heaven, I know, is a perfect place. There's no sin allowed in heaven. I'm an imperfect person, but I want you, God, to make an exception on my behalf. And God's going to say, your blood is insufficient You must pay for your sins in a place called hell. The other option is you accept Jesus' blood and God says, I know you, you're related to my son. My son has paid the price for you to come into heaven. Because you accepted him, you get to come into heaven. If you choose option one, you reside in hell forever. You choose option two, which is Jesus Christ and his blood, then you get to go to heaven. Well, how do I know this? Again, we're going to go back to scripture. Acts chapter four, early on in the church, in church history, verse 11. For Jesus, the Messiah, is the one referred to in the scriptures when they speak of a stone discarded by the builders, which became the capstone of the arch. The cornerstone is what they're saying. He's, he's using imagery here. The, the cornerstone, the, the most important stone is Jesus Christ. The Jewish nation has rejected the most important stone. Then look what he says. There is salvation in who? What? I didn't hear you. No one else. Under all heaven, there is no other name for men to call upon to save them. According to Scripture, scripture, scripture. according to scripture, there is no other way to get into heaven except by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've got to choose the right blood. Well, how can we know if someone's made this choice? Because there should be indications in their life. There should be changes that point us that way. We're told in the Bible that when a, a uh, person becomes a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, they are changed from the inside out. They become a new creation. They become a new person. A new life has begun. If the person never changes, if there's no signs of new life, I would question whether they've ever chosen the right blood. Now, let's go back to uh, Acts chapter 19 and let's finish this up. You remember the seven sons of Sceva, they were whipped naked, ran out naked, and everybody heard about God and was in awe of the real deal. Look what happens in verse 18. Many who were followers now started telling everyone about the evil things they had been doing. 
Now this is, I'll come back to this. Some who had been practicing witchcraft even brought their books and burned them in public. Okay, even some of the believers, it was so ingrained in them, the magic that was around them. The believers, the true Christians still had some of these evil books around. They were still practicing magic. When they saw the real deal, they said, oh my God is powerful and I better fess up. They, they didn't keep their secrets. They didn't keep... Because Satan has power in your dark secrets. They started confessing him. And the way the, the scripture reads, it says they kept confessing. Every time they messed up, they kept coming back and saying, I messed up. I do not want to be on the opposite side of God's power. I want all of God's power. And when God sees someone who is honest and open and humble and will admit their faults, God says, I can use that person to change the world. Now, you think about the churches we've all been on, been in, including this church. The reason we don't see miraculous things happening is because we're still dabbling with the old life. We're in love with our old lives. And we really think it just costs too much. Jesus wants too much for me. I want my toys. I want my alcohol, my my drugs, my sex, when I want it, with whom I want it. And God says, I don't, pour out my, I don't pour out my power in those situations. The real deal comes for people who humble themselves. God says, show me a humble person. I'll use them to change the world. When these folks saw the real deal, they were changed. And they told people their secrets. And they burned their magic books. And this was in, interesting to me. I, I've read this for years, heard this story for years. The, uh, the total value of the books that they, that they burned that day, the magic spell books, was equal to a full year's wages of 150 men. Add up full year's wages, everybody in this room. That's what they burned because they said, we've, we've tasted a new power that's better than this stuff. So we're just going to get rid of it, no matter what the cost. Well, there's some time for some self-evaluation today. When you choose the right blood, you're changed and your priorities change. The way you spend your time changes. The way you spend your money changes. Your attitude changes. So I want to ask you, are you more worried about what other people think about you? Are you more worried about being known than, than worrying about what God thinks about you? That's the first point today. Are you worshiping a counterfeit? Are you trying to get power for yourself? Or are you trying to point everyone to God's power? Not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. What is it you're worshiping? Because if God's not demonstrating His power in your life, you've been worshiping something that's a false power. The way you spend your life, spend your time, spend your money is a clear indication to everyone around you of what you love and who you worship. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Some of you right now need to choose the blood of Jesus Christ. You have never asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. And right now is the time to do it. Because we are in a spiritual battle. When you leave this place, you will enter Satan's territory. And he will attack you. If you do not have the armor of God, if you're not related to God, you don't have access to His power. So the way you choose the right blood is you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. You just pray this silently right there where you are. God, I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive my sins and become the leader in my life. Change me and use me as you see fit. 
Some of you have wandered away from God and you've been you've been casually dating the bride of Christ. You've been casually going about your relationship with Christ. You're a believer, but no one would know it by your actions and attitudes. You need to pray and say, God, please forgive me and restore my relationship with you and restore my witness in front of others. And then some of you, quite honestly, you need to start telling people, some trusted Christian friends, you need to start confessing your areas of struggle because you're never going to get over them. You've tried over and over again. You're the same person you were. Actually, you're probably worse today than you were five months ago, a year ago, because you've been keeping these secrets in, thinking by mere willpower you can overcome your past, and you can't. The Bible says if we confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, our sins will be healed. There's a process, and it involves humbling yourself before God and before other trusted Christian friends. Father, take this time, multiply it, demonstrate your power in some lives today that are teetering on the brink, some marriages that are teetering on the brink, and bring glory and honor through New Life Community Church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you take your registration cards, if you would, and I want you to be brutally honest. On the back, I always ask you to write something down. So if over the past week or month or six months, if you've really been struggling with this desire to be known, you really want people to, to uh, uh, pat you on the back and notice you and, and give you compliments and all that stuff, if that's really been your struggle, I want you to write number one. I'm struggling with wanting to be known. Second thing is, if you just really you know, want power, if you want more money so that you can do more things, so that you can just have a little more power and a little more props, then you put number two. I've been struggling with number two. If you realize that you have been worshiping a counterfeit, whether that's job or relationship or uh, money, toys, whatever it is, if you're worshiping something other than God, you put number three, I've, I've fallen for a counterfeit. And if today was the first day that some of you have stepped into the kingdom of God, the first day you've chosen the right blood, you put number four, I chose the right blood today.